Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. Hey everybody, I'm J.R. Jameson. And I'm Kelsey Timmerman, and we are the founders of The Facing Project. Today's theme is Life After the Bomb, where we'll explore what happens when life changes in an instant. So we're going to bring you two stories, one from a woman in Iowa who was forced from her home as a child by nuclear testing in the Bikini Islands, and another from a man in Indiana whose life changed shortly after he tucked his kids in for the night. Let's get to the stories. When the bomb went off, Mary's story is told to Ann Kelly from Facing Diversity, Marshallese Stories, a facing project in Dubuque, Iowa, performed by Debbie Gertman. On the morning of March 1st, 1954, I woke up to a red sky. I did not know why it was red. I was only seven years old. I was on Utrecht, one of the Marshall Islands on the Rectoc or Sunrise chain of islands, but that is just a word to use. That does not mean the skies always look like sunrise, but this sky did. All around me, everyone was just looking up, wondering too. I was asking them what was going on. Nobody knew. That afternoon, a seaplane came from the U.S. military base in Kwaju Lin on the Sunset, or Relic, side of the islands, to where we were on Utrecht. It was carrying soldiers, and the soldiers were there to examine us. I later learned that they were checking to see if we were affected by radiation. Later on, there were some people whose skin was burning, so something very bad must have happened when the sky turned red. My father was one of those who were examined. After two days, I remembered that a big ship came. It was so big that it could not come to the lagoon side of Utrecht. It had to come to the ocean side. I remember how excited my brother and his friends were. I think they were the ones who told me about the ship first. There's a big ship at the ocean, they said. They ran to where all the people were gathered to see it and said, The Russians are here! But the men who came off that ship started talking to some of the adults, and I could hear that they were speaking in English, so I knew it was U.S. soldiers from Kwajalein. They told the adults who knew English that we were all to leave the island. They said it was not safe on Utrecht because of the bomb. The bomb from Bikini Island, the biggest one ever, is what lit the sky that morning when I was just waking up. It left radiation that made so many people sick. Why would they do that? Did they not think that there were people living there, asleep in their beds, eating breakfast? Did they not think of those people? My father, my brother, my sister... 
my classmate and someday my student. The rocks, the birds, the water, the air. Did they not think of all that was underneath them? They were there to take us away to Kwajalein. They had to examine us. We had to leave everything. We could take a change of clothes for only one day. We were confused, and I saw that some of the children were crying. I could tell that some of the adults did not like what the soldiers were doing. But we got our clothes and got onto the ship. The ship was so big that it had ladders, like you see in the movies. And the soldiers had to take us one by one up the ladders. It took every one of us, maybe 150 from Utrecht, on that ship and up those ladders and away from home without telling us why. We were quarantined in the soldiers' camp when we got to Kwajalein and stayed there for about a month. It was so small there. Every family had just one room. I did not have much to do there. My home island is Majiro, and my father was a pastor, so we traveled from island to island when I was little. They're all pretty much the same, but it was still interesting to meet and play with different people at each one. I lived most of my life on Kwajalein, but when I lived here, I would play Marshallese games like hide-and-seek or we'd make a ball out of a coconut. In the soldiers' camp, we tried to play games, but it was not like our home. There were other children there from another poisoned island, but we couldn't play with them because the soldiers put us on two different sides of a road. When people wanted to visit us at the camp, they couldn't come speak to us or bring us food or clothing or anything we needed. We were left alone and kept away from everything we had. The soldiers were not mean. Every morning they brought us breakfast, and after breakfast they took us to the lagoon side of the island so that they could wash the poison from us with shampoo. I remember that we had to wear men's underwear over our bodies to get washed. When I think of this now, I would not have warned them. I would have said no. They'd wash our clothes and put them all together in a pile. Then we would have to look through the pile to find our own clothes every day. Like I said, these soldiers were not mean to us, but they were soldiers, and they didn't even know what clothes were ours, and this was not our home. When I think of our clothes in a pile, the ladders on the ship, the soldiers, and the red morning sky, sometimes I get mad. I also remember Lakez, a student of mine, when I taught social studies in the Bible on the islands. He went to the U.S. a lot to be examined because he was really poisonous, and he died too. When my brother died at 69, he had lots of pain, like Lakez's pain. My sister gets so hot that sometimes she cannot sleep for days and days because she had her thyroid removed from cancer. I remember these people and the others who died and those of us who were underneath the red skies and taken out of the ship and put in the soldiers' camp. I get mad because my people are peaceful people. But I know that you cannot fight to make peace. It does not work.
From 1946 to 1958, the United States conducted 67 tests in the Marshall Islands. Their combined explosive power over that 12-year period equals 1.6 Hiroshima-sized explosions per day. I'm completely shocked by this. I feel like this is a part of our history. I was never taught in school. Do you remember at all learning about the Marshall Islands? Yeah, I think it's kind of one of those dark marks kind of on our history that we kind of avoid. I mean, so to be honest, the first time I heard anything about the Marshall Islands, I was sitting in Spanish class. We didn't really discuss the Marshall Islands, but there was a big map I sat next to. And I sat ne right next to the Bikini Islands. And I thought that was funny. Yeah. You know, and so that's just my mind. Oh, this funny place. Oh, people probably know that there's this Bikini Island out there, but they might not know what actually happened there. And I think it's uh, tragic. Yeah. So I think sometimes stories draw us in and make us more curious about a subject. So I had not really ever researched what happened in the Marshall Islands. I think I had an idea that there was some testing that was done. But after reading Mary's story, we both kind of went down this rabbit hole and we learned, actually learned, about uh, this injustice that happened to these people. And uh, they are a freely associated state. Uh, I, I, I didn't really no. know that. Uh, they're a sovereign nation with their own seat, the United Nations. They're served by the FCC. Uh, so those words that we can't say on the radio here, we, I guess they can't say there either. FEMA, National Weather Service, they use the dollar. They can serve in the military. And so they are us. Right. And yeah. and what happened there so many years ago impacted all the way to Tennessee. They found radioactive fallout in cows in Tennessee. So we're also connected in, in that way as well. And so many Marshallese actually came to the mainland after this and have settled all over the country. These particular stories were captured in Iowa. Iowa, who would have thought? Right. right? Yeah. And Susie Gassman, who led our project in Iowa, collected these stories. And she talked to me about how hard it was to get people to share these stories because there's still a mistrust around being open and honest and sharing this part of their history with uh, people who were born here on the mainland. I mean, how could there not be a mistrust, right? I mean, the, the settlement that the United States, we gave them or, it was $270 million, but the independent tribunal put the damages at $2.3 billion. Wow. Yeah. And if Mary had been brave enough to share her story, I mean, we may not have actually taken the time to learn this history. The worst and best days of my life. Brad Doherty's story as told to Ruthie Schellebarger from A Midsummer Night's Narrative, Stories of Unity in Delaware County, Indiana, a Facing Project Storytelling Festival, performed by Bill Inman. October 23, 2017, Day 1. Suddenly, there was a howl coming from outside our bedroom door. It wasn't the sound of arguing kids, but a shrill, soul-piercing scream of agony. I jumped out of bed and opened the door only to find my youngest son, Christian, writhing in pain. What do I do? What is happening? I thought. I felt so helpless. I picked him up in an effort to comfort him, but he just kept screaming. He let out one last excruciating scream, and then his body went lifeless. 
How could this be happening to our son? He's only six years old. I have never been so scared in my life. But I kept reminding myself that God will get us through this. November 3rd, 2017, Day 11. Christian was losing blood. They gave him two units and then four. They had cut open his skull and had to remove tissue from my son's brain to get to the fast-growing tumor. If the swelling didn't go down, we'd lose him. There would be more surgeries, but that night I sat next to him and listened to his heart blip on a machine that sounded like an old Atari game. His heartbeat was my own therapy. Sometimes it was shallow, but sometimes it was so strong that I worried it would beat right out of his chest. But I continued to listen. I have learned how to tell when the beat is off and something is wrong, which is comforting for me because I feel like I am doing something to help. I stayed up all night listening, finding comfort in each beat, never knowing if it would be the last. The doctor told us the tumor was malignant and aggressive. It was rare. In that moment, my wife and I fell to the floor. I told her, we can't get mad at God through this. As I said this, his nurse came to the surgery waiting room and just cried with us. That evening, she sent me the song, Miracle. The words, don't you give up on a miracle. I clung to them. November 22nd, 2017, Day 30. There are never normal days at Riley. You either have a really good day or a really bad day. Today was Christian's third surgery, and I prayed it was a good day. As I walked through the halls of Riley Hospital, I thought about the past month and how much we had gone through. I do a lot of walking these days. Sometimes I even stop to talk to a statue of a man on the first floor. My friend Ashley started a GoFundMe for us. I felt bad about sharing it on Facebook. I am not the kind of man to ask others for help, but I didn't know what to do. The bills just kept getting larger and larger. I am so thankful for all the help I've received from my community. I just feel like I don't deserve it. It's hard for me to ask for help. After the surgery, while Christian was in recovery, I paced the halls past other parents. You could tell on each of their faces if it was a good day or a bad day. The surgery was as good as it could be. I guess today was a good day. God is good. December 6th, 2018, Day 44 
Christian's following has grown exponentially. So many people have reached out to tell us how Christian's story has impacted their lives. It is nice to know that some good has come out of this situation. My friend Patrick told me he wanted to do something for my family. I had no idea he would put together an auction for us. All you ever hear on the news are bad things, bad people. A bad thing happened to our family, and all of these people, good people, have been helping us. Politics, religion, race, none of that matters. Right now, all that matters is the community coming together to help. Albany Elementary, where the kids go to school, has been amazing. People visited us. People we don't know visited us. People from around the world reached out to me on Facebook. People are good. December 28th, 2017, Day 66. Albany gave Christian a hero's homecoming. Albany Emergency Services escorted us with fire trucks. When they pulled up, Christian's best friend popped out. We are so excited to celebrate Christmas with the kids. It has been a hard few months, but I think this will be the best Christmas yet. We have two Christmas trees, each given to us by different people. Presents are scattered throughout the floor. If it weren't for our school or church, we may not have had Christmas at all. I cannot describe the joy in my heart. Christian went to bed and asked if we could sing, Good, Good Father. Of course, the answer was yes. My heart filled as our entire family sang together, reunited at home at last. Tears welled in my eyes. It was by far the most precious sound I have ever heard. Today was a good day. We are so blessed. God is good all the time. January 27th, 2018, Day 96. The minute I walked into the auction, tears filled my eyes. I have never seen so many people surrounding our family with love. I am so overwhelmed with love and support. Then, when Patrick handed me the check at the end of the auction, I just sat out in the parking lot for a few minutes. We will not have to worry about medical bills, travel and food expenses, or how much time we had to be off work. It was so overwhelming. I wish everyone could feel loved like this. February 2nd, 2018, day 102. I picked up the mail just like any other day when I noticed a letter from someone in New York. I don't know anyone from there. I opened the letter and... To my surprise, a check fell out 
for $10,000. I couldn't believe it. It was from the son of a famous painter. The fact our story has impacted so many people all over the world is a miracle in itself. To imagine a person not knowing us at all, writing out that check, addressing the letter, putting on the stamp, and sending it to us, I am still in complete shock. As a business owner, I was always hesitant to share about my personal life, but I shared this journey with the world. Even though our story looked like it wasn't going to have a happy ending, I always trusted that God had a plan for us all. This story has reached so many, and God has used it in so many ways. Someone told me the other day that recently they had reached a point where they wanted to end their own life. But because they saw God's miracles through Christian story, they kept going. And now they have a renewed faith. People help us. We help people. Together, we help each other. God has allowed me to see so many amazing things, and I am truly in awe of Him. I tear up just thinking about all that has happened. These past few months have been the worst and best months of my life. I have been able to share my faith in a way that was not abrasive. I am so blessed. God is good all the time. We want to add a disclaimer that we actually know Brad. He has an office just right around the corner from us. Maybe like three or four years, I bet, we've known Brad. Yeah, Yeah. probably. I think we met him in 15, 16, somewhere in there. Yeah, um, it's been heartbreaking to watch Brad's story play out, but it's also been pretty amazing in some ways and and how how it's changed Brad. I saw him at the coffee shop the other day and I asked him, Oh, what's your week look like? What are you up to? And that's in the coffee shop. It's usually kind of a business conversation. Oh, this meeting, this appointment. And Brad was like, well, um, we're taking the kids and we're going to go get some strawberry shortcake uh, at Ivanhoe's, which is like a famous ice cream place near us. And uh, and, and I just think that he it seems to me kind of to be enlightened in like what's important in mm-hmm. life right now is they're facing what the unspeakable speakable thing that they're facing, right? These yeah. circumstances and what they've been through together as a family. Um, yeah. I think he's been really vulnerable too. Uh, he just kind of laid it out bare, their financial situation, the bills that were coming, and people really um, kind of came to that and have supported them in these amazing ways. So I think it's been really interesting to see the strength that has given Brad to be so vulnerable and yeah. have people come around him so much. And he sits down every day and does reflective posts on Facebook. So he takes the time to appreciate those small moments in life and document them for all of us to read and stop in our own tracks to say, am I taking the time to really appreciate some of these smaller moments that actually are the ones that are the, the most meaningful as we progress through life? Yeah, just that one thing a day, right? What yeah. moment of joy did you get out of this day? And, and some of the days that they're facing are so hard, but they always finds that one thing. Next month, 
we'll be back to talk about the depths of addiction. We've now made it easier than ever to participate in the Facing Project. Visit us online at facingproject.com to learn how to submit a story that will become a part of our national archive and could be featured on this radio program. This is where you can also find other Facing Project stories and how to start a full-fledged Facing Project in your community. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Thank you.